Welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Friday, May the 20th. This week, we examine a fascinating and potentially life-changing research program for people with complete spinal cord injury. Published online today, Friday, May the 20th, is an article which outlines how a research team in the United States have used epidural electrical stimulation of the spinal cord to regenerate partial motor activity in a young man who has been in a paraplegic state for nearly five years as a result of a road traffic accident which caused a complete C7-T1 lesion of the spinal cord. The lead researchers on this program are Professor Susan Harkima at the Kentucky Spinal Cord Research Center at the University of Louisville, Kentucky, and Reggie Edgerton, Professor of Integrative Biology, Physiology and Neurophysiology at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And earlier I spoke to Professor Edgerton about this remarkable research program and its preliminary findings. The conceptual basis of the paper is actually extremely important and probably the most important part of the paper as opposed to what has specifically happened to this one subject, but the conceptual basis that that supports probably how it occurred. Basically, that is, we've been knowing from the animal experiments for a number of years now that after there's an injury at a particular level of the spinal cord, once you get one or two segments away from that injury, most of the neurons and the the networks that connect these neurons remain pretty much intact unless it's an unusual injury where there's a lot of ischemia and usually that's not the case. There are some types of injuries where there is such as a stroke of the spinal cord but generally the network remains functional and basically what we have found and others have found with the animal experiments is after a complete transaction of the spinal cord at the mid-thoracic level, those neurons in the lower part of the spinal cord are capable of generating relatively effective uh, stepping with the full weight bearing, can step at a range of speeds and directions and so forth. So the animal experiments have shown that. In the last few years, some of the key experiments have been with rats, and after a complete spinal transaction in a rat, they actually are unable to step at all, even in spite of having this network that remains. We have found two ways that we can enhance the excitability of this network. We basically, I would say the easiest way to explain it is that we are stimulating the spinal cord with electrodes placed over the membrane that surrounds the spinal cord. We can stimulate in a way that doesn't actually induce movement, but it changes the excitability of this network. It would be like changing the mood. We're always changing the, the what we would refer to as a physiological state, but really is the mood of a network so that given sensory information comes to the brain or to the spinal cord, it's not always treated the same. And you can think of many examples of that with respect to the brain. We are modulating the excitability of the spinal cord. Now, obviously, if we're not inducing movement, that's not going to be enough to accomplish what we have seen with the animals or the human. But when you add another important concept, which is also relatively new and an important one that we show in this paper, is that the sensory information from the legs is still projected to the spinal cord. And interestingly, the spinal cord 
knows how to interpret that information. For example, all of the sensory information associated with loading of one limb versus another, whether you're standing, the spinal cord circuitry recognizes that and knows exactly how to respond to that information. Even though that information is not getting up to the brain, it doesn't matter. The spinal cord is already smart enough. It knows what to do. So it's like there's neural memory there. Yeah, you could call it neural memory. Some people have referred to that. I, I kind of relate it to uh, a concept of evolutionary learning. In other words, if you go out and look at uh, simpler animals, a lizard or something walking around in the yard, and you see how complex movements they're making, you're not usually thinking about how smart they are in terms of their conscious control. They're responding to all the environmental cues. Many people have thought that the humans, uh, in, in the evolution of the human nervous system, that we've lost many of those capabilities. But I think that um, that's been greatly overemphasized. And in fact, we still have those. And I suspect that the sensory information is a much more important aspect of the control of normal movement than we had uh, predicted. So anyway, the point is we can change the mood of this circuitry and then use this sensory information as a source of control. The other important point that we saw with the animals, and I think we've seen this uh, in, in this one subject, is that this system is also highly plastic. That is, you can train it. The spinal cord can learn, and it basically learns what you teach it. So it can gradually improve over time. Thank you very much for explaining those very important concepts. Can you just briefly, because obviously people can read the paper for themselves, the details, can you just briefly explain the process involved with this human being and the training that was required? The technology that was available today, based on the animal experiments, it appeared that uh, we should go ahead and start to see if these same concepts were viable in the human subject. So we selected a human subject that is what is generally referred to, would be referred to as motor complete. That is, they're completely paralyzed below the lesion. He has some sensory information. So he, he can sense some of feelings below the lesion, but he has no voluntary motor control or any ability to move muscles below the lesion. So what we did is we took the technology that was available today that's really designed for another purpose. It was designed to primarily to suppress pain. But we thought this technology might be close enough that we could determine proof of principle whether we were on the right track. So we implanted this what's referred to as an electrode array. It has 16 microelectrodes that's placed in a paddle-like arrangement. And it's placed over the lower spinal cord, over those neurons that are responsible for almost all of the movements of the legs and actually the control of the bladder and bowel and sex function and many other things. But, of course, we were focusing on standing and stepping. We basically used the same type of stimulation strategies with the human subject as we have defined with the animal experiments over the last almost 10 years now. So, And in doing that, we pretty quickly found out that the, the human spinal cord in this individual, even though he had been paralyzed for approximately three years, he began to respond pretty rapidly. But uh, an important part of this is the rehabilitation and the training.
In other words, we're pretty confident, and we actually did this experiment with animals, that if you only stimulate every day and not uh, have the individual performing some of the motor tasks, the rats don't improve at all if we just stimulate them rather than stimulate them and, and train them on the treadmill. Yeah, so it's like exercise in a gym. You know, you don't see the benefit right. unless you put the work in. You generally think of the exercise in the gym as you're working out your muscles. Of course, everyone is generally recognizing now that you're also working out your brain, but you think about, again, an individual that had been paralyzed for approximately three years. Those networks had not really been functional for quite some time. So uh, they, they basically have to relearn, even though the basic pattern is probably there. These networks have to be reconditioned and uh, retaught how to interpret that sensory information and respond. Just briefly, how is the person doing now? Well, he's doing uh, quite well. Our agreement with, uh, with each patient, uh, we plan to do five. Our agreement is that uh, after one year, the person does not have to remain at University of Louisville and be there daily for training. They're pretty much on their own. So the subject is using the stimulator on his own to try to continue to um, improve. And uh, he has a standing frame so he can practice standing in his apartment. And uh, health-wise, I think he's doing quite well. He looks great. We're quite happy with where he is, and I think he is too. Does he have some control o over those voluntary movements that you talked about, such as um, bladder contraction and... Yeah, this was the biggest surprise of all. This is one of the reasons we wanted to make sure that he could continue training himself when he's at home because he is training himself to perform these voluntary contractions on a daily basis. We've tested him a couple of times since he's left or at the end and, and later on. He's continuing to improve. Well, how far this is going to go, we have no idea, but we will keep following up and testing him several times a year just to determine how these uh, all of these properties that we're seeing, how they're going to change over, over time. Thank you. And finally, you mentioned you're going to try this in five individuals. We're documenting one in the Lancet paper. What stage are the other four at? Are they still in the planning phase? Well, we, we plan to implant the second subject uh, this summer, and then the third one we hope will be just a few months behind. We're at a point now where we think we can move a little more rapidly because it will be between the first and the second subject. It will be about a year and a half. Our first implant was December 2009 in this one subject, but we've learned so much from this subject. We think we're ready to move on a little more rapidly. And of course, our strategy is to try to find subjects with almost identical properties. So an issue of duplication, of course, when you have an N of 1, there's always a concern that, that it's an N of 1 and it's not going to happen again. I like the saying that once you've seen a black swan, you can't say all swans are white. The observation here from that standpoint, I think it kind of opens our eyes. Well, many thanks to Reggie Edgerton, and do look out for a comment alongside this article by authors from Zurich, Switzerland, and St. Petersburg in Russia. And also online, look out for accompanying web video about this remarkable research. Well, that's all for this week. See you next time.